Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Bibi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. Is it really? Is what really? <laughs> your book, forthcoming. Like what pass what pass are you on right now? How many how many editorial passes have you done? I'm on the umpteenth pass. No, I, I actually have no idea exactly how many there were. Um, I, are there a lot? I thought you could only have three. If we you, if you could only have three, I've had them. Um, okay. I guess it depends on what you're counting as an editorial pass. Um, but I'm counting on like it's like they give you the first the first time you see it as copy, right? Yeah. In a, that happened. Now in a PDF, it used to be printed out. And you get you re, you respond you're responding to copy edits then or whatever. Then you get it back. Then you can do that once more, and then you get a third pass, which is the final time. I only got one of the ones in copy. Okay. I think. I mean, with a copy editor. That's how I remember it. But it's been you know I'm I it's been longer ago than you you would remember more directly what's happening. Anyway, yeah, I think that we're. We're jumping the gun. We're jumping the gun. No, no, no. We're talking about first or second or third pass proofs, you know. Um, and we haven't done a, a, a publishing industry episode in a while, so we thought that we would use the occasion of you finishing your book to do one. Most podcasts, including our own, talk about how books get written and sold or bought. Um, but we wanted to spend an episode talking about what happens to a book once it has already been written and bought. Yeah, I think a lot of that process is surprising and interesting and, and sometimes sometimes a tiny bit stressful. Just a tiny bit. <laughs> I, you know, it's good stress. Is there such a thing as good stress? I think that finishing a book and then everything else that happens for me is like, it, it requires concentration and there's work, but it's a different kind of work than writing a novel. With a novel, there's so much that you don't know. Uh, every morning you wake up. This is what I'm doing because I'm I'm actually re- you know doing adding some edits to my book, which will hopefully be forthcoming soon enough. And you're asked to solve a problem that you don't have a solution for, and that solution you have to find is one that nobody else has used. And and so that seems different than the stuff that happens post publication. Sorry for the French dogs barking outside. <laughs> French dogs. Um, <laughs> I know, there's a lot of French dogs every, around here. Everyone's. Everyone's uh, everyone's in France this summer except for me. Anyway, um, there's that's because you have a forthcoming book. You don't get to go to France if you have a forthcoming book. It's only the Whitney's crying, the a, slouchers like me who go to France. Whitney's crying a single tear for me. So there is, as we're <laughs> alluding to, plenty of uncertainty to the publishing part also, um, and I'm finding that there's a ton of that. It's um, it's really a, a different ballgame now than it was the last time I had a book come out. And uh, I do feel like at times I am trying to find solutions to a problem that no one else has no one else has used these solutions. Yeah. Okay. I mean, fair enough. I mean, I remember the days of publishing. Uh, you know, like going through the process of beginning that publishing a book. So. We always do the guest bios on the show normally, um, but we never get to do our own bios, so we're going to introduce you. Vivi Ganeshanathan is the author of Love Marriage, which was uh, long-listed for the Women's Prize and named one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post. Her work has appeared in Granta, the New York Times, and Plowshares, among others. A former vice president of the South Asian Journalists Association, she has also served on the board of the Asian American Writers Workshop. She is a member of the board of directors of the American Institute for, the, for Sri Lankan Studies and the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. 
a co-host of the fiction nonfiction podcast uh, on Literary Hub, which I have heard of. She teaches in the MFA program at the University of Minnesota. How am I doing? That is, yeah, good stuff. Um, I now have a lot of... <laughs> I forgot about how you have to decide on a facial expression that you have while your bio is being read, which is like, a, it's like bio side eye. Like, I'm not here. Um, anyway, so that... <laughs> that only happens in readings, though, because on the video for this, it'll just be me talking. You won't, They won't see Oh, good. Okay. Good. Yeah. There's... You guys can't... Yeah. Don't pay no attention to the, to the Sugi behind okay. the curtain. Um, it better be accurate because, like, I think that's actually... Um, that's the bio from my book jacket and the rest all goes into press materials. Yeah. So, all right. Press materials. That's what we're going to, let's start there. And before we do, I'm going to give you just a little, I'm going to give listeners an outline for kind of how we're going to organize this talk. We're going to divide the quote unquote book preparation duties into three sections. One, publicity slash self-presentation of which the bio is a part. Two, editorial. And three, the physical book. And yeah, that's, that's fine. We can divide it into sections if you want. I know you like your groupings, but... You put your glasses on in the middle of the video. What is going... That's... <laughs> I'm supposed... That's to... not how that's supposed to... You're supposed to decide ahead of time what you're... Now, now it's too late. I'm sorry. If you need them, wear them. They're fine. They look wonderful, but, you know, Just, next time. I couldn't see... I couldn't Speaking see. of self-presentation. <laughs> anyway, um, you can have your groupings if you want. You can... But I, I want to stipulate that none of these things, publicity, self-presentation, editorial, and the physical book, these are not happening in that order necessarily. Nothing is happening in order. Everything is happening everywhere all at once um, or in overlapping waves. Yeah, that's true. That is that is how that works, right? So there's not an order. This is all happening at the same time. But I do think that once a book, book is purchased and turned in, before the copy edits arrive, there's a flurry of publicity work, including preparing your press materials, including an updated bio. So... Just for starters, what constitutes a good bio? How did you choose what you put into what I just read and what you left out? What are you trying to communicate in your bio? It's funny that you asked this question because to come up with this bio, I think what happened was that I received a manuscript version of the book and it just had a bio in it and I didn't remember having written one or come up with one and so I like it's like, I don't object to this, but I also have no idea of its origins. So I wrote back. And, so somebody at your publishing house created a, a bio. I think so. And it was it was a perfectly reasonable bio. But I was like, is this, I was like, what is this attempting to communicate? And to whom is it, like, what is its goal? Does it have a goal? And they were like, no, you can change it if you want to. We just, you know, I think they just maybe dummied one up and, and put it in um, to save me time. And they were like, you know, and then I, pr I presented some alternatives, um, mostly which were sort of of the credential nature. And what you just heard a lot of was boards. I noticed I'm on a lot of, I've been on a lot of boards. I'm well, on boards. I'm assuming you're mentioning the Sri Lankan studies, uh, American Institute for Sri Lankan studies, because the novel was set in Sri Lanka and, you're, and that's like a way of credentialing. That's true. Um, and I think also maybe what this bio gesture to is, is a little bit of um, my involvement in social issues um, and social justice and cultural organizations, et cetera, like my involvement in community. And so that was one way it was um, explained to me, like this bio does this. And if you did a bio with um, awards or something, it would do something else. And, you know, I liked the idea of presenting myself as someone who is involved in community um, that felt accurate, hopefully, hopefully accurate, hopefully interesting. And um, like sort of, right the the discomfort of a bio is like that you have to um 
into a into a kind of self-aggrandizement that I at least find like very squirmish. <laughs> and you have to be like, I am, and I, you know, if I wanted to be in do a lot of I am, I would probably write more essays. And um, I write some, uh-huh. but right, this is not that. This is this is not that. So like, there's something I'm. I admire the brief bio. I admire the um, I admire the one with the funny twist at the end. Um, I think, you know, there's so many different ways it can be done. It's a little bit like, what's a good resume? You know, and I sort of, I know a good resume when I see one, but there's so many acceptable formats and different ways to present yourself. But I think the question that I asked my editor was actually, it was helpful in clarifying for me to ask that, like, who is, what is this trying to say about me? And the fact that I hadn't written it before I asked the question was also helpful. Um, I think they were probably trying to help me get out of the skirmish bit. Well, I think you always want to say, "Hey, what did my what was my last book, and what and what have my books done that have been that has been notable?" I think people like to see that your work has appeared in prominent places, and you mentioned Granta and the New York Times. I mean, that's a way of saying, like, "Hey, I'm a I'm a pro. I published in these places." Um, I know when I was publishing The Good Lieutenant, like because it was a war novel, I, I mentioned all of the war reporting that I did. And I wanted to make sure that that was in there so that people knew, okay, well, that answers some questions about why he would be writing this book. Um, so were there parts of that? I mean, that, that, that is what I would, that's what I think of when I'm looking at your, at your bio. Were there parts that you added here that weren't in there before? Um, I think I swapped out. I swapped out a publication because I think that I straight out of college had worked at The Atlantic. Um, and I felt like that credential is, I mean, it's accurate. It's also a little bit old. Um, and so I swapped it out for something more recent, um, and things. I don't mention that I worked at the New York Observer anymore because Jared Kushner or whatever that guy's name is runs it. Right. I mean, there's the, there's the, right. It's, it's all, it's all selective also, right. I mean, you're putting things in, you're leaving things out. So, um, I tried to, you know, I mentioned, um, places where both my fiction and my nonfiction had appeared. And I also just put in things I do that I really love, like, um, I really loved working at the Asian American Writers Workshop. That job meant a lot to me. Um, being on the podcast means a lot to me. So I, I definitely like that was not in the initial draft and I went and put it in. Um, and the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop. I mean, all of these um, aisles, which is how we say the acronym for American Institute of Sri Lankan Studies. Like a lot of my um, colleagues involved in that organization were helpful with the book. And so it's also like a way of acknowledging them, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. The bio, though, is only a small piece of this. You also get assigned a publicist. You meet with that publicist, or at least I did, you know, before the book comes out. Generally, the first thing that happens, or at least this happened at Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, is like the publicist gives me a form, like asking me to fill out all the people that I know in publishing, people who might review or assign the book to be reviewed, who might blurb the book, who are homies and like would help me out in some way. Have you done that yet? Did you do that? Will you do that? Um, I did do that. I did it for Random House a while ago. Um, it might have been last fall. Um, and I have to do another one for um, Viking, which is publishing Brotherless Night in England. And yeah, it's um, I've lived a lot of places and I find this to be pretty overwhelming task and I sort of have to start reconciling myself immediately at the beginning that's like I'm going to forget someone or something but then a thing that I did this time that I was actually really helpful and made me feel so much better was that because I'm like 
not only in physical, but also in electronic order. I had my previous author questionnaire that I had sent to Random House for Love Marriage, and it is filled out so badly. <laughs> like, it's just, a, I just did a terrible job. Like, I had no sense of what would be useful at all, and I was struggling and scraping for anything that would be helpful and I knew like you know hardly anyone this is my aunt who lives in Wisconsin <laughs> for a few blocks from a bookstore maybe she could be helpful. I mean it was really bad um and so I had that document and I read it and I was like well at least whatever I do will be better than that this time so um like looking at my own history of filling those out and realizing how much better equipped I was now made me feel less terrible as I did it. Um, but yeah, it, it's another like, right. All of these things that you're doing in this time period feel like, like again, conscious self aggrandizement or like you're trying to, you're of course you're like spent all this time on your book and you're trying to promote it. And I at least am, um, afflicted with like, I think there's for some people anyway, like no small amount of shame attached to promoting oneself. And so what is, <laughs> what is that? I don't, I mean, I think like <laughs> I no no I do I, I don't say what I mean like what is that I don't mean that I mean I do mean I do think that I was brought up that you shouldn't promote yourself like that wasn't really yeah the culture that I was brought up in that seems similar to you yes um, <laughs> although I found that less hard to get over <laughs> for some reason. I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I think like there's <laughs> a lot because of... I didn't like the culture that I was brought up in. So I was like, all right, fuck this, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think like there's, of course, like all sorts of cultural and gender and I don't know, like, you know, geography and all sorts of things going into that age. And um, I don't know what you feel deferential about and what you don't. And like, why do you feel deferential or like, and I don't know if you don't, if you don't sort of take this chance to say... And I think I've I've also been lucky to I took a really long time to write the book, but I also have had a lot of people, including you, like say like I'm on your side, and that also in comparison to the previous round made me feel like I knew who also would be comfortable with me putting their name on that list, um, which made me feel like less gross about it. <laughs> um, um, there's a lot of people who are going to be very supportive of your book. I know that for a fact. Um, so the most delicate, and this, when I was thinking about our earlier conversation about what was stressful about this, this is the thing that does stress me out and that I do feel extremely nervous about when it happens is the blurb request, right? So I know you've done yours already because you told me that you did, but how did you make those requests? Why did you choose the people that you asked? Why didn't you ask me to give you a blurb? What is going on around here? What am I, chopped liver? Um, and this is the part... Turn, tune into the video channel to watch me turn off my video in shame. Um, and, you know, I think, like, it is so delicate and weird. Um, and I sometimes have, yeah, like, you know, students will say to me, like, how does this happen, this weird transaction, um, which exists in the terrain between friendship and business where, like, no one really wants to lurk in that swamp. Um, and so, you know, th I think I had provided this list of who I knew. And then I think that what they, I think that what happens, this is also somewhat mysterious to me, probably purposefully so, but like, right, you know, they go to, maybe they go to sales and say, um, like, what is, what are the goals here? And then, you know, I expressed um, like my admiration for um, some people who I also like, there were people I knew and then also just like people who I didn't know, but whose work I really admired. And 
um, then I think I also came to understand, as I did not understand, I think also the first time around, that like you can't actually ask everyone, um, right? So the publishing house is also they have a certain number of asks probably that they can they can have, and so they can't I don't know ask um, you know Marilyn Robinson for everyone. Um, they have to figure <laughs> out where that would make the most sense and. Yeah. Um, whose work she's actually most likely to to like and support. And that's like maybe not the best example. But um, so you can't actually, you shouldn't ask everyone you knew. Because the other thing that can happen, and this has happened to me, and, and I understand that this happens, so it's also okay. But like sometimes you blurb a book and your blurb doesn't appear anywhere in the promotional material for the book. And that's also like, that's a little bit of a waste, right? Like it's, you've taken that person. I get super bummed out about that. I'm sorry. I don't think that's cool. I mean, I think that it's, I mean, it's hard on everyone. Cause like the, the writer has maybe. I've never actually had that happen to me. So I, I, I'm not, a, I, that's a new one. I've, I've had that. I've had that happen to me at least once. And I think like, you know, at that point, um, you know, just someone, someone somewhere has done some bad math. And I mean that both like on the, the level of how many blurbs can fit on the back of a book slash inside. They're like, this person's name is too long. We can't have their blurb on here. <laughs> That's really, like, I think that um, I'm also a person who has sometimes been quoted specifically take up, to take up an extra line in a newspaper. So um, also a thing that has happened to me. So, right, like you have to, I don't know, you have to be strategic about like who who can you who can you bear to have say no to you also i mean whose support would you love mm, to have yeah. like what are the hail marys you're gonna throw um and you can't actually all right so what was your what was your biggest hail mary that worked we're not going to talk about people who like said no to you um but i guess like in so some people have been asked and those haven't come back yet like there were a couple different oh, rounds so you're still waiting there are a couple different rounds make me nervous there were four early blurbers celeste ng brit bennett danielle evans and saranovich and saranovich i have never met and i know she's actually she's a friend of yours and yeah i know i mean we have done we did a conference together she's a i don't we're an acquaintance but yeah i love she's great she's a great person but um and and yeah we had talked about we talked about her work and that we both ad- admired it and i think you had mentioned it to me and um but I think that that random house actually came up with Sarah and as a suggestion. And then she like went out of her way to do that and she'd never met me. And so that that kind of generosity exists and like, um, you know, happens all the time. And like I have um, a variety of connections to Celeste and Britt and Danielle, who are also really wonderful, but also who I didn't want to assume would. I mean, how can you assume anyone's availability for anything, including and especially like right now during a pandemic when like God knows what is going on in, in someone's life. Um, and so, I mean, I'm so hugely appreciative of, of, of their support for the book. And then there are also some like Hail Marys that are still out there where I was like, what is happening? Um, and those are really exciting. And they were also just like a little bit funny where I was like walking around the house being like, how does this, do I was like, do you ask, do I ask? And then, well, that's what did so, you write personal letters to the, the four people that you mentioned before? You all, you know, all of them. I assume you wrote them an email and said, Would you blur their book? I wrote to the three book. I knew. Um, and okay. my, ed- oh, other than Sarah. Yeah. And my yeah. editor wrote to Sarah. And then, then there were people I didn't know who I wrote personal notes to, sort of about like, I really admire your work. And this is what my book is about. This is why I, th- I think and hope that you might like it. Um, these are the things that, in your work have buoyed me through the 18 years of working on this book. Um, and like whether or not you're, you're able to do this, I just like 
appreciate you. Um, and to try to do that without sounding obsequious, um, which is a thing that like I personally don't, I also don't want to sound obsequious, but there's also like, I don't know what sounds obsequious to different people, uh, but like to sound gen- I mean, if you like the person, yeah. you can be honest about right. liking their work. And, it's not that hard. And so that was in the end you what know. I like, I was like, I was like, it's okay. I can say things. Um, yeah. So but yeah, that was actually, I mean, in For Love Marriage, I didn't, I didn't do that. Um, that, that round did not, did not happen. So this was like a totally new process to me to be sitting around writing. Um, yeah. And in some cases I was like, how do I even address this person? Dear sir, um, <laughs> dear revered, dear revered um, role model. Like, so, you know, yeah. um, it was, it was also, I mean, it was just, I was, I was like, I mean, I'm in, um, like, a very absurd epistolary novel right now. <laughs> I, the one thing that is interesting to me about that is that I think blurbs do almost nothing to sell books. Um, I think that they do help within the house. So that if a big, really positive blurb comes in, it goes out to the sales staff, it's shared with all the other editorial editors, everyone who's selling the book, sees it right and and says oh this person who is important and who we like has said this great thing about this book this helps us feel good about selling the book i don't know that it actually i don't know that readers buy books because of blurb but i do think that it helps within the house if that makes any sense i feel like it definitely helps within the house um i think that we have no way of knowing whether it helps with sales because there just like is no control group for that um uh-huh. Right. There's no way to kind of to separate that out. I don't know. Like that actually would be a really interesting study that I would be fascinated to see. But I think um, clearly the sales folks think that they help. Um, on the other hand, uh, I know um, some kids were telling me about like, you know, the blurbs on the back of Rick Riordan's books are fake blurbs from gods. Um, like the like the <laughs> Percy Jackson books are like. Right. So there's also I don't know, there's like a. There's a lot of work put into blurbs. I think this is the this is the part where like the, there's a great amount of effort for not as much return as the effort is. I think on the blurbs, if everyone could just could, could declare a truce on blurbs, and we would have no blurbs on books anywhere at all ever in the industry, everyone would be better off. Are, That's what I think. You were not my first friend to suggest that. I also think that will never happen. It will never happen. I know it's not going to happen. It's like there's no such thing as unilateral disarmament. So everyone has to have the blurbs on the book to say that the book is good so that people, a reader won't think, well, what's wrong with this book? It doesn't have any blurbs. I can only think of like one or two blurbs that have like significantly like one of the ones that comes to mind is my friend Emily Barton, who Thomas Pynchon blurbed her first novel. And that was a huge deal. And I think it really did like help with review coverage and help people pay attention to the book. I thought it was really great thing for her and well-deserved. I, there just aren't that many cases of that, though. I think you're, yeah. I mean, I probably, overall, you're right. I mean, I can think of a few recently that I've that I've seen, like what um, Jonathan Escoffery was, had gotten an extraordinary blurb from Ann Patchett um, that I was thrilled to see. Um, but yeah, I can count on one hand, the, yeah, like the number that I can remember. Um, and... Still haven't answered why you didn't get that Whitney Terrell blurb, which is one of the few blurbs that actually will sell books in this world <laughs> in the Kansas City, Missouri area. I just, I know, I, I think that the way that this, the way that this works, um, you know, like you and I co-host. I'm a- giving you shit because <laughs> that we know why. There's a real reason, and I think it's worth discussing. Like, okay, this would be the wrong person to have blurb the book. I am not the right person to blurb your book. Right. Well, I mean, like, so we're known to be, we're we're known associates. Um, yeah. 
and um, like our, I don't know, our. It's like, what's he going to say? You know, like we have, we already have a pre-existing relationship. And also we're going to be talking about this book on the podcast. So I don't see why it would help for me to be on the back of your book. Also, what the fuck do I know about Sri Lanka? I'm not the right person to ask for a blurb about Sri Lanka, a Sri Lankan novel. Well, I mean, like, this is an interesting thing, right? Because also, what does it mean? And and this didn't happen for Brotherless Night, but, like, if... I mean, what does... What does the, I mean, the group of writers that we just mentioned, they have no particular expertise on Sri Lanka either. Um, That's true. Right, and so... Well, you asked Sarah because she wrote a, her novels about war, and a war, a sort of civil war type thing. Yeah, I mean, like, again, so so Random House picked Sarah, and I thought it was a good pick, um, but they did not explain it. They didn't explain it to me that way. They actually didn't explain it at all. Um, I just... I think we sort of like, they said her the name and I kind of was like, oh, of course, that's really smart. Um, but I'm sure they had multiple reasons for it also. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm also glad to have the support of it as a general literary work because I think that it's very easy for work by writers from any kind of marginalized background in particular to get sort of pegged to being, um, for people to forget to talk about the art. Um I at some point had coined some sort of portmanteau about this that involved aesthetic and ethnic, and I can't possibly say it now under pressure. But um, <laughs> just like, you know, I don't know. My ethnicity is like not an actual... Um, there, I took my glasses off and put them back on because I remembered. Um, okay. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I'm glad, to, I'm glad to have like the support of, of folks who are not quote unquote like specialists. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's a mystery, blurbs. Um, and it's delightful when they work out and obscurely, vaguely stressful when they don't because you don't know what effect it's having. But that that's so... I'm just going to say they do make me jubilantly happy when they come in from somebody that you really like. And that is that is quite positive and that is a good feeling. Yeah. It's your, sort of like your first editorial review. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Okay, we're going to move on to my favorite part, which is editorial. I love going over copy. I love thinking about continuity edits. You're such a nerd. You don't like it? No, I love it. I'm also a nerd. I'm just okay. <laughs> All right. Can you describe in specific terms what that process has looked like for you? Um, yeah, I think so. We talked about this a little bit before. So there was Caitlin did some line edits. Um, Caitlin McKenna, who's my editor. And we we did fold some parts of the process into each other. So normally there would be a read that was just the copy editor, at least that's my understanding, and a read that was just Caitlin before that. And in my case, for a variety of reasons that were I, I think we're going to talk about a little bit later, like the that read was layered on top of those reads were layered on top of each other. So there was a version of the manuscript where the copy editor and Caitlin were both editing it. Um, oh, that sounds a little complicated. Yeah, and um, there were like timing. Wait, no, I just want to slow down. Like, so, uh, I my first book came out in two thousand and one, and that book was edited entirely in colored pencils, right by hand. That so was the book that came out in two thousand five, and then my last book, which came out in twenty fifteen, I think it was like that was all track changes, and we didn't we sort of got away from. So are you doing this entirely on the computer or is there a manual part? Um, It's entirely on the computer. That's a great question because um, 
yeah, I mean, love marriage did also involve like a lot of colored pencil. I mean, I, I remember piling up the manuscript. Um, I, I worked, I back then worked in bed and I would just have like the manuscript strewn kind of all over the place and then being like, I can't lose this or misplace this or put, have it out of order. And I need to be able to read my own handwriting. And, um, the fact that only a single copy of it existed, I found that there was no way to back it up. I found very stressful. Um, and this, right. So if, tell me if this was the same for you, you would get actual line edits in red pencil. And then I worked in a green pencil to distinguish from that. And I would like say, you know, I would just leave it if I wanted to keep the edit or I would have to physically sit, circle it and say like stat or I want it this way or I'd have to add a page like no see added, you know, copy. And then I would actually type up the sentence the way I wanted it and like put it into the manuscript in the next page. Yeah, I, what I remember is something like that. Um, I don't remember, I don't know, the exact colors of the pencils, but yeah, there was... Um, there was every everything was being done by hand those insertions those um the arguments of like you know you put a comma in i'm going to take it out you put it in i'm going to take it out um all of the the moments when the copy editor is asking very reasonable questions and you're discovering that you have a continuity error or like a grammatical inconsistency that they have just explained to you that is revealed to you you know years of your prose style and problems um, that was all happening manually. I found a continuity edit in the Good Lieutenant that wasn't clear to me until I was making edits for the French edition. The French found it out. They were like, "Hey, look, what about this?" And I was like, "I don't know. Do we really have to explain that?" Continuity edits—they're so fun. So um, I will say, yeah, the last in the last version, the last set of proofs, which was relatively recent, I read the book aloud. Um, and that took forever and was really helpful. And I found mm. many continuity edits and also many prose ticks. And I was like, should have done that one before. Um, and normally I think I would have, but again, like the pandemic and various other circumstances. Well, the nice thing about the, the reason that the, I find the, this part soothing is because you've accepted the plot is the plot. You what's happened is happening, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> you're making a face. And I'm beginning to realize that when I was publishing The King of Kings County, I was on this really tight schedule. And so I turned the book in in August and it had to be done by October. And they're like, we're putting this out next year. And I rewrote a significant portion of that book between like first and second pass edits, you know, and I was adding like chapters, you know, did you do that? Um, no, I did not okay. do that in the proofs um with one exception which my editor and i had discussed um that there was like a large desire in-house actually for a specific emotional beat to be hit and i had kind of wanted to do that but hadn't figured out how to do it and they were like please do it please do it you can still do it and Mm. so i did that um in the last pass um, or pretty close to it. And, but other than that, it was like very much sentence level edits. Um, that last proofs file has 452 comments in it, Mm. but I don't know. I also, the book is in British English. So I also did things like search for I Z E and then replace it with I S E and, um, and stuff like that. But yeah, it was, I was not, I'm a plot changer. I'm a plot changer until, pretty late in the game 
but uh-huh. um, I didn't do it in the proofs very much. I have done that. I do that almost every, except for my first book, I do that. It's a very bad, not a, sometimes there's a scene that needs to be added that I won't be able to discuss till you have the sort of calmness of the proofs, you know, like, okay, the major storm is over. I can, I can really sort of consider this. And I'm like, eh. you know, that feeling when you're like, ah, God, I really, I'm going to do this. They're going to be so mad, but I'm going to do it anyway. I did. And then you add something to the proofs. There was something about um, the proofs where, I mean, I also was like, how much does the flow matter here? Am I trying to like make changes that fill the same number of lines? Like, how does it matter? And mm, yeah. Caitlin was like, just do what's best for the book. And, you know, if you, I don't know, if you, you get charged a certain amount of money, if there's like um, reflow issues, but you would have to do something, as far as I can tell, pretty excessive. Like I turned in 452 comments, some of which are commas and um, British English or continuity corrections, right? And no one's going to begrudge me, as far as I can tell, like a continuity correction, um, right? That would be about like suddenly adding like gratuitous paragraphs um, because I feel like it and not because the book itself requires it. So I found them to be really supportive of the changes and also given again like pandemic and other circumstances like really accommodating of you know I would say like I um what happened there were like so many things that happened um where I would be like so I have this issue or like I got sick or there's um massive political things happening in my city um like would you mind giving me like a moment and they were always really nice about it so one of the complications for this editing process, which we're saying involves a lot of typing on keys, and even if it involved handwriting, it would be a problem for you because you've been working with a disability since early April 2021, and your hands are injured. So how are you doing this editorial work? Um, yeah, that's right. So, and I've had hand, I had hand problems off and on before that, but um, the ones since April 2021 have been continuous. Um, there's... I counted them the other day just because I was like, what happened? And there were like nine different injuries, um, all of which are related and some of which are like compensating for each other. But maybe the shortest versions are to say that I have bone spurs at both of my wrists, which are from pan- like basically overuse that's connected to the pandemic. And so I go to a lot of PT and have like an ergonomic setup and things like that. But really the thing that helps is not typing. And so I don't type in different ways. Um, I use Google Documents speech recognition. Um, I use the speech recognition that is built into Macintosh computers. I use the speech recognition in Microsoft Word. Um, I use voice memos. And then I have a couple of um, student workers who are scribes for me who are supported by both my department and the Disability Resources Center here at the University of Minnesota. And so a lot of the time it was happening was that I was composing and either people in my life, like my friends before these student workers were hired and then, and then later the student workers were editing stuff or typing for me. Um, and so I would dictate. And so when I said that I had done that final pass reading aloud, I wasn't reading aloud to myself. I was actually reading aloud to one of my two scribes. And then after I started doing that, both of my scribes are remarkable, but, um, this uh, the scribe who worked with me on the final pass of the book 
after a certain period of time, I realized that it was to my benefit to stick with one scribe for that past because they were also accumulating all of the continuity in their brain. And so like, I was able to not just like, and they were, they were really generous about it also. Like I could say like, do you understand this? Like, do you remember this? Did I repeat this phrase? I did repeat this phrase. Did you notice it? Um, do you remember this small detail from earlier in the plot? Um, do you understand the politics? Did they ever say, I prefer not to? <laughs> they didn't. Because that's what, that's the only scribe character that I know from literature. Is yeah. That, that's what Bartleby No, um, fortunately, they're very not Bartleby. Um, they're, they're, okay. <laughs> they're both really wonderful. And, and um, the scribe who worked on the final pass really helped me to catch a lot of continuity errors. And so I think like now, even if, um, if or when my hands are better, um, I think I would follow that process again. It was, um, really, really precise. And I think it helped me a lot. All right. We have now arrived at the preparation of the physical book, which as we said at the beginning has been going on concurrently during all these other things that are happening, but the fun part. This is fun. When did you get your cover images and what did they look like? Um, when did I start getting cover images? I think I started getting cover images a while ago and there were different rounds, like ones that had strong elements, but didn't quite strike. Um, and I think that there were a lot that I didn't see that maybe Caitlin just saw. And, um, the designer, Donna Chang, who's completely wonderful, like did a lot of just was really thoughtful and did a lot of research. And, and Caitlin also asked a lot of smart questions, sometimes was asking smart questions that like hadn't occurred to me, you know, what is the symbolic meaning of this image, um, in a Sri Lankan political context, um, for example. And, um, yeah, so there were a few different rounds and then it kind of narrowed down to two images and then there were a bunch of conversations at my agency and also in-house, you know, which of these two images did people prefer? And then there was a really strong preference for one and the people who preferred that one kind of made their pitch for it. And I liked both of them actually. Um, and I kind of pulled my friends and, um, you know, or just if I happened to be in conversation with another writer, I would, and it's, and it's like, wait, can you describe the two of them? Yeah. And so like, um, right. And this is all very, like very tender and weird to ask for other people's opinions about this, because if they say they don't like one and you end up with that one, like you have to be able to move forward in conversation with that person. Like you don't want to, to like, every time you see that person be like, ah, they hate the cover of my book. Um, right. And so one of the images, it was, um, so th there was a first set of images that were, like kind of landscape oriented. And I think that was in part because I had admired some landscape ish covers, um, and had cited them. I, you know, I was asked for images that I found inspiring or that I had, that I was drawn to as I was working. So I sent in a bunch of images and I said, I don't necessarily have rights to all of these. Some of these are images I took, like here are artists that I like here, are images of Sri Lanka that I find powerful, like and they, there were, they made useful suggestions, like think of specific scenes. Like, is there a specific scene that you wish was on the cover of the book and depicted in some way? And eventually, um, I realized that there are a lot of people on bicycles, um, in the book and a person riding a bicycle is a, an image that I associate with Jaffna, um, the city in Sri Lanka where most of the book is set. And so, I think that, I mean, I haven't talked to Donna Chang directly about this, but I think that there was some hunting, you know, I was asked to hunt for 
pictures of people on bicycles. I think presumably they were looking for pictures of people on bicycles and they found one. Um, and it's really terrific. Um, the photographer's name is Ack. Um, Jeremy, I want to say Cerdic, but maybe I will swiftly look that up. Um, and I wasn't familiar with his work. So the designer found that and like that he had been to Sri Lanka. He had, um, you know, he had, he had, so he had done reporting there. His, um, his name is Jeremy Syker. I think it's, it's S-U-Y-K-E-R if anyone wants to look up his work. And, and, um, and so it's important to me that the image actually be of Sri Lanka and not somewhere else. Um, and no one ever debated that with me, which was great because sometimes people will just presume that it's okay to swap something in that is more dominant, um, kind of in other people's imaginations. But this, it felt like really respected my imagination while also giving the designer freedom to express. Um, so actually I have, I have, um, an advanced uncorrected proof. So I will, for look, I was incentivized tuning into our YouTube channel where I'm holding up. Um, very nice. Yeah. So there is, um, a woman on a bicycle, um, in front of a building in Jaffna, which, and the building has, um, suffered some damage and, um, and the dominant colors are kind of red and yellow and the, the lettering on the cover is yellow and, and then there, there are blurbs. Um, and yeah, so, and then I think like, I will go through this whole process again for the British edition. Um, and those tend to be, the British covers are really different. So that'll be, I suspect like a very different conversation too, which will be, which will be cool to see how they're, how they're varied. All right. So the last thing that we want to have you do, um, is, we're not going to have you read from the book. We'll, we'll, when the book comes out, we'll do. We'll, we'll talk about that aspect of it. But um, I, I, I often have students write jacket copy for like uh, whatever you know thesis they're working on, or if they're writing a novel, or if they're a collection of short stories. Like, how would you? I think that it's hard when you're first starting as a writer to imagine how you would present yourself to the marketplace. Let's put it that way. And, and abstract what your book is about. Because, of course, well, my book is about everything. It's, it's the, it, it encompasses all worlds, you know. And, and why would I want to limit it by saying what it's about, you know. And that's sort of what I think you start at that position and then realize, well, you have to limit it to make it mean anything. So, uh, and, I think, and I think students are often surprised that, at least in my case, I think two out of three times of the novels I've written, I've written the jacket copy. Um, did you write your jacket copy or did you have editorial say in it? And then would you read it for us? Sure. Um, I did have say in it. I don't honestly remember if I wrote the first version of it. I think it might've been a collab. I definitely, my editor and I, and, um, and the assistant editor working with her, all three of us definitely worked on it and debated the specific phrasing of it. And, um, and yeah, so I think, yeah, I definitely had a lot of had a lot of say in it, and um, you know, and I think if there had been any part of it that I was specifically uncomfortable with, that it would not have flown, um, which I really appreciated because of the specifics of the politics. So, um, yeah, the jacket copy for Brotherless Night, which just for the record, I imagine all jacket copy read in the voice of that that dude who does all of the movie trailers, like you know, land before time, you know, and so if I if I could do that voice, I would be doing it now. Um, about Brotherless Night. 
A courageous young woman tries to protect her dream of becoming a doctor as civil war devastates Sri Lanka in this searing novel. Jaffna, 1981. 16-year-old Sashi wants to become a doctor, but over the next decade, as a vicious civil war subsumes Sri Lanka, her dream takes a different path as she watches those around her, including her four beloved brothers, get swept up in violent political ideologies and their consequences. She must ask herself, is it possible for anyone to move through life without doing harm? Sashi begins working as a medic at a field hospital for the militant Tamil Tigers, who, following years of state discrimination and violence, are fighting for a separate homeland for Sri Lanka's Tamil minority. But after the Tigers murder one of her teachers and the arrival of Indian peacekeepers brings further atrocities, she turns to another one of her professors, a feminist and dissident who invites Sashi to join her in a dangerous secret project of documenting human rights violations as a mode of civil resistance. Set during the early years of Sri Lanka's 30-year civil war and based on 16 years of research, Brotherless Night is a heart-rending portrait of one woman's moral journey and a testament to both the enduring impact of war and the bonds of home. That's it. Oh, that was good. Thanks. I think it's really interesting when you talk about the, um, one of the things that's hard for students and was hard for me, and you talk about, uh, we were talking earlier about like not wanting to... Uh, you know, to like say great things, you know, like say, this is an amazing, terrific, wonderful novel, you know, like you have to, you know, but when you write the copy, you got to say searing, or you must say, you know, like, you know, you have to be able to say that this is good, or that this is powerful, or that this is, the war is vicious, you have to use strong language at certain points to signal things that you're trying to say about the book. I mean, I think you're using some, the word searing and, and the vicious civil war, I think was that you know, like, you want to say, look, this is a book that's, a, it's, it's not a comedy. No. I mean, I think you're trying to get that Definitely across, not. right? Yeah. I mean, I think okay. right. <laughs> there was a moment where I was like, I've always wanted to be called this. Could I be called this? And I like just leaned, yeah. I leaned into the silliness of asking the question and they were like, you can be called that. And I was like, cool. Wow. I don't even remember Good. which of these adjectives it was. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it feels a little bit like, like the prose version of giving that blue steel look from Zoolander. But... <laughs> <laughs> That is totally true. That is so funny. That is very good. But yeah, anyway, so I'm I'm working on my working on my blue steel look. But um Okay. <laughs> you took your glasses off to give it. I see. That's very nice. All right. Um Well, Sugi, what are your expectations here? It's been a while since you published your last book. You you um I like it that you said that you were doing research during some of that time. <laughs> <laughs> based on 16 years of research i love it it's a way of you flipping the tie that took me a long time to write this book but based on those 16 years of research i did the same thing with the good lieutenant which took me a very long time so i'm super sympathetic um what do you hope is going to happen right like it's again this is like a little bit of a of a dance win the pulitzer prize uh reese yeah. witherspoon book club um, anything else? <laughs> Again, the like movie trailer voice. With an unprecedented level of awesome, Brotherless Night rises to, right? Like, I mean, it's. I think that one thing to do is, like, try to figure out how to turn the dial down a little. Um, and it's hard because how can you, like, that's that dial is so far inside yourself. you got to, like, it's like, um, 
of course I have to reference this movie, but it's like, it's like that part in Temple of Doom where they just stick their hand right into your chest and like rip out your heart. Right. And you gotta be like, no, keep it in there. Like, you know, just like keep your, keep your heart for other things. Like I think, um, you know, Sam Chang wrote that, that terrific essay about protecting, protecting your inner life. And several people have spoken wisely about how like your publication life and your writing life don't have to be the same. So I think mm. I'll like mutter that to myself a lot and hope that I can like keep my keep my writing life my own. Um, but like that's that takes a lot of emotional discipline, and I think like I'll have to I'll have to work on it. Um, like like you have to work on every everything else. But I think like the the routes by which one does that are like certainly less clear to me. Um, but I think like the news itself has become so unpredictable, right? And like I you you've talked on this show about. Um, how news has affected like publication for you, um, right? Like events in the world, like September 11th, um, right? Like, I mean, anything, anything can happen. Anything can happen. Like I have friends who spent as long as this writing their books and then they came out during the pandemic and, and maybe that was, that certainly was not what they imagined. So, um, you know, I, I hope that it finds the readers catching a break there. (laughs) I mean, exactly. I I think that, yeah, I guess all all books for the foreseeable future coming out during the pandemic. Um, I I think like this isn't. I'm sure that it will not go as I expect. So I'm going to try to expect very little, um, and like hope that it finds that I get to have good conversations with readers, um, and that it finds people who understand it. Well, I think it's an excellent searing. <laughs> Incredibly well-crafted masterpiece <laughs> novel. There's my blurb. Thank uh, you. But I read it. I think it's fantastic, and I think it'll do extremely well. And thank you for joining me on the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast, which you co-founded. And listeners, we encourage you to begin preparing to pre-order Brotherless Night, which will be out in January of 2020. You can pre-order it now. <laughs> Okay, there you go. There'll be links there. Um, Reorder it now. Well, thank you. Am I in the acknowledgments? (laughs) Are you going to also screw me? Thank you. Thank you so much for. uh, Thank you so much for interviewing me. I'm not going to address that question at this time. (laughs) Tune in. Tune in next time. Um, All right. But yeah, thank you so much. I did just get an email from a friend who said. I've just gone over my proofs, and uh, there were, there was um, so a couple mistakes, and one of them was in your name in the acknowledgments. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, fantastic. At least it's there. I will I will double check all the spelling of all proper names. All right, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Bye, bye, everyone. Thanks for the interview. Talk to you next time, listeners. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!